Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here today. It's a wonderful, sunny summer day, nice temperature outside. Glad to see everybody, see the wonderful fellowship that we have here in our church. So today we're continuing our series in Acts. We're getting close to the end now, just as summer is starting to wrap up, we are wrapping up with this study. And as we've been going through Acts, we've seen some incredible things. We've seen healings. We've seen a guy come back from the dead. We've seen uh, the gospel go out into the world, churches being planted, leaders being brought up, and the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people. Some incredible things in the book of Acts that have been incredibly exciting. And today's passage maybe isn't as exciting as some of the ones we've seen before. It's not as spectacular, you might say but that doesn't make it any less important. In fact, I feel that this passage has a lot for us. To share just a little bit with you, as I was preparing this yesterday, there was a part that brought me to tears. And I just am so in love with God's Word and how something that was written so long ago by someone I have never met in a country I've never been is yet still so powerful as to move me throughout the age. And I hope that it will move you as well as we go through it today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 21 today. Before we get started, I'll just pray for us. God, I'm thankful for this time we have to come together. I'm thankful for your word and the power it has in it. God, I'd ask as we gather here today to worship you, that our worship would be pure and true, that uh, the word we have to study today would impact us. God, every word in your scriptures is powerful, and I'd ask that we would just be excited to study it, excited to hear what it has for us, and not only excited to hear what it has for us, but excited to do what, what it tells us to. Father, we pray this all in your Son's name. Amen. So this chapter, Acts 21, it kind of starts in the middle of Paul's return journey to Jerusalem. So he's on his third missionary trip, and in the last chapter, he decided to make uh, a return journey back to Jerusalem. And it picks up here in chapter 21 at the end of this meeting that Paul has just had with some leaders from the church in Ephesus. See, on this missionary journey, Paul planted this church in Ephesus, and he spent a couple years there and really developed some solid friendships. And so the beginning of this passage, it says this, it says, after we tore ourselves away from them. Now, I want to highlight two things here. First, I want to highlight the words we and them. These are the two things I want to highlight. So first, we. Who is the we? So the reason it says we here is because the author, Luke the physician, is with Paul and his other companions at this point in the journey. In fact, the we picked up a little bit before this. There's a few passages in Acts that we call the we passages because they're in the first person plural. So most of Acts is actually written in third person. As we started out, it talks about the disciples and the apostles. They did this, and, and Philip went here, and Paul did that. But now it's saying we, we went here, we tore ourselves away from them because Luke has joined them. Now, uh, what we notice during these we passages is that the detail increases, which makes sense, right? So Luke wrote the book. He wrote it off a lot of secondhand accounts that he got from people who were there. But here, he's right there. He's witnessing it. So the details increase because it's him taking his own travel log and writing it into the book of Acts. 
So that's the we. It's Paul, Luke, the author, and, and the fellow companions. So who's the them? Well, in the previous passage, we see that the them are the leaders of the church in Ephesus. See, they had traveled to meet Paul in a city just south of Ephesus called Miletus. And this was the last time these people from Ephesus would see Paul, which is why it was so difficult for Paul and his companions to leave, as we see Luke uses this phrase, tore ourselves away. It was a difficult thing. And, and there's, a, there's a beauty here that these people who Paul spent time with, th- there's so much joy they got to share in this, this final meeting, but Paul says at the end, he says, this will be our last time that we see each other. And there's pain because these dear friends that Paul has made will most likely never see him again. And so they accompany him down to the boat and they see him off and they tear themselves away from Paul. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to read this first passage here, which is the beginning of Paul's journey away from Miletus. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. Then when we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought Nason from Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. So here we see Paul, he's bouncing around the Mediterranean on his way back to Jerusalem. And, and I find it helpful when I read passages like this to to find a map of the area at the time and and track what's happening. So I want to do that now with all of you. I've got a map up here. Uh, This is a map of the Mediterranean Sea and the kind of the area breakdown at the time of Acts. Here's a bit of the Roman Empire here on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, or western side of the Mediterranean. No, eastern side. So let's zoom in here a little bit and get a better look at Paul's trip. So this is the area that's that's under concern, or that's being talked about. So let's follow Paul here. here. We've got Paul. Here's a a painting of Paul from the Renaissance. Yeah, 
There's no good paintings of Paul. I don't know if you know this, but high-definition cameras didn't exist at the time of Paul, so this is the best we're going to get. So here's Paul, and he starts out in Miletus. So Paul, he's up there in Miletus. If you go to the next slide, he starts there. So there he is in Miletus. And this is where he'd met with the, the leaders from Ephesus. This is where we start, and they tear themselves away. Then from Miletus, Paul moves on. He takes a little trip down to Kos. They stop on the island of Kos. Then after the island of Kos, they move on to the island of Rhodes. From Rhodes, they go to Patara over there in Lycia. And then from there, they try and find a ship. Now they're close enough, they're far enough east that they can find a ship that's going to take them straight over here to Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia was just a, a subsection of Syria. Uh, it's a, a very old people group and area. It's here on the coast there, uh, the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And Paul, they find a ship that's heading straight on over to Phoenicia. So they get on that ship, they, they head there, they see Cyprus, they pass to the south of it, and then they go on from there and they land in Tyre. So we'll, we'll once again zoom in here. So they land uh, in Tyre after about a 400-mile sailing journey from Patara that would have taken several days. And in Tyre, the ship takes a week to unload. Now, the reason it probably took that long is because they just went on a long journey, so they're getting all the cargo they brought, selling that, picking up some more cargo, and then also giving the crew a week off after a long and probably hard journey across the Mediterranean. And during this week, here in Tyre, Paul and his companions, they seek out some fellow believers. So while they're in Tyre, they're there for a week, and they, they say they go out and they look for fellow believers to spend time with. Now, I find this significant for a couple reasons. The first is that we don't see anything in the book of Acts about a church being planted in Tyre, which is a reminder for us that Acts is only a small snippet of what God is doing with His church in the first century. There's disciples and apostles and evangelists going out and planting churches, and the gospel is spreading so much more than what we see in the book of Acts, which is the same today. You know, we have our own ministry and our own lives that we see, but there's so much more that's happening across the world. The second observation is that despite being there for just a week, Paul and his companions find it important to go out and find Christian fellowship. I wish that more people in the church today, myself included, valued Christian fellowship as much as Paul and his companions do, and as much as they show here. That, just that desire to spend time with Christians. You know, they could have just napped on the boat or found a tavern to sleep in, but no, they went out and they shared time, and Paul probably taught, and they exchanged time with one another. And after this week in Tyre, uh, the party sets sail again, but before they leave, all the believers in Tyre, including their wives and children, come with Paul down to the beach, and they pray together. Isn't that incredible? Paul's been with them for a week. We don't know that Paul's really had any encounter with them. It doesn't seem he knew anyone there. If he did, they probably would have been named, would have said, Luke would have said, and Paul saw his friend uh, Artemis or something like that. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see this, Paul shows up and these group of Christians are like, oh, you're, you're a fellow believer? It's so great to see you. It's so great to be a part of your journey. And we're going to accompany you down to the beach and pray for you before you leave. Now, uh, it was then from Tyre, they move on to Ptolemaeus. And here in Ptolemaeus, they stay a day, and once again, he spends time with believers despite only being there for a day in Ptolemaeus. 
Then leaving Ptolemaeus, they arrive in Caesarea. Now Paul and his companions, at this point, they're on the last leg of their journey. Caesarea was the seaport that supplied Jerusalem. It was only a three or four day walk from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They stay at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist, it says he was one of the seven. That means that he was one of the seven original appointed deacons. This is the same Philip I talked about in chapter 8 who went and preached to Samaria. It seems he settled down in the area and married and had some kids here in Caesarea. So they stay there for some time until this prophet Agabus comes up, and they have their interaction there, and then from there they finally go on to Jerusalem, where they would stay with Nason of Cyprus. So if you kind of zoom out and you look at what Paul's journey looks like, you draw a line of where he went, you get something like this, and you're like, yeah, obviously it looks like that. But, but I think this is incredibly important and significant. So... I want to point something out about this picture here. It makes sense, right? The, the lines, they make sense. It, this is, this is a, the way they would travel. Oh, you can keep that up for a little bit. It, it makes sense. And you're like, yeah, of course it makes sense as the journey went on. But there are so many people out there who, who say that a lot, if not the entire Bible, is made up, and you don't have to spend much time on the internet to find them. But when you study the Bible and see the history inside of it, you'll find that there is truth there and evidence to believe it. See, the, the, at the starting journey, the ship that hugged the, the coastline, this is something very common. Ships would not, it would have been very rare to find a ship sailing from Miletus all the way down to Caesarea. That would have been the easiest journey, but since Paul's on a bit of a hurry to get back, he's not going to wait around and look for that rare ship that would go there. And they hug the shoreline, which was a common thing for ships to do because it's way easier to float away to safety if you're in a shipwreck when you're close to the, the shore rather than being out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And that, that stops when it gets to Patara because if they go any farther east, now the island of Cyprus is in the way and he won't be able to land in southern Phoenicia. And then from Patara, they, they pass south of Cyprus. He says he sees Cyprus, and they pass to the south of it, which is exactly where they need to pass to land in Tyre. And they go from Tyre to Ptolemais to Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, this is, this is significant because Luke didn't have Google Maps. In fact, he probably didn't even have a map at all. And yet, he gets every stop correct in the order. He doesn't say we went from Miletus to Patara to... Ka no, he gets everything in order, which means... He was probably there, which means this journey happened. Because it would be preposterous for us to read this and say, oh, well, he made it up and just got really lucky with the names. Maybe he went and found an atlas somewhere. And so I like to point things out like this because it's valuable to help us believe and understand the Bible. And that, that's all I need that map for. Now, uh, another thing I like to point out here is that it just helps us kind of understand the mindset that Paul's in. He's been on a, a long journey. He's been rushing to get home. And so that kind of helps us understand what's going on, how the people are feeling, what they've been through. So I hope you find that geography valuable because the Bible has history in it. The book of Acts is a historical account of the early actions of the church. And Oftentimes, geography can help us appreciate and understand history. 
So now let's, let's go back in this passage and kind of, kind of look at a few other things. So why was Paul hurrying back to Jerusalem? Why was he on this return journey to Jerusalem? And why was he trying to get there quickly? Well, he was on a mission to return to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, which is why he didn't stay long in any of the places they stopped. You see, on his journey out, he goes, he finds a place, he'll preach the gospel there, he'll get in a synagogue and preach to the people, he'll uh, set up a church, hopefully, and uh, stay there until he gets run out of town. But on the way back, that's not what he's doing. In fact, he doesn't stay anywhere longer than a week. And so the reason for that is he's trying to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So a little bit of background on Pentecost, or Shavuot as it's called in Hebrew, it was a harvest festival, or I suppose is a harvest festival, still celebrated by Jews today. It occurs on a Sabbath day, and during that, people are expected to make a sacrifice, thanking God for the harvest and thanking God for the abundance and, and blessing in their lives. Now, during the first century, when, when the the events of Acts were happening, it was very common for Jews who could to make a trip out to Jerusalem so they could offer their sacrifice in the temple and also be part of the great celebration that's going on in Jerusalem. There's so many people gathering, and it's just a, a great fun time. You get to see people. There's going to be events there, um, and naturally just the religious significance of going to the temple is huge. And so Paul, loving and appreciating the love of Moses, wants to be back in time for this important and incredible celebration. But on top of that, because there are so many people who are going to come to Jerusalem for this, it's a perfect opportunity for Paul to go and help preach the gospel there. There's so many people there who are going to hear the gospel maybe for the first time. And so, we see that Paul, uh, he says in Romans 10, that his heart and his prayer to God concerning the Jews is for their salvation. God, uh, Paul had a love for his fellow Jewish people, and he wanted them to be saved. So, this is why he's hurrying back to Jerusalem. He wants to participate in the, 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 the festival of Pentecost, but he also wants to provide an opportunity for more Jews to hear about the gospel. But despite Paul's uh, great desire to return to Jerusalem, you probably noticed in that passage a few times where people were trying to keep him from going to Jerusalem. Many people tried to discourage him from returning to, to Jerusalem because of what awaited him there. In verse 4, we see some of the disciples entire trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It says that through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then when Paul arrives in Caesarea, his last stop before Jerusalem, he stays with Philip several days until a prophet called Agabus from Judea arrives and gives a warning to Paul. An interesting thing to note here is that Philip had four daughters who could prophesy, and yet despite this, God saw fit to bring up this prophet from Judea to give Paul this word rather than the prophets who were there, which I think is just an important reminder that God's vision and His perspective is so much bigger than ours. You know, our simple limited perspective would say, well, the four prophet girls are there. Why don't they just give them the message? You know, they can trade off. Like, the one girl can start, and then they can switch, and they can, it'll be fun. But no, they have, God has Agabus come up, and that's because God has more important or better reasons than we can understand. Often, oftentimes, our understanding is too limited. 
Another thing I just want to quickly note here is in the text, it, it's, it describes Philip's four daughters as virgins. And the reason it does that is, is because it's, it's denoting that they are young and unmarried and still living at home. There's not some special, like, they're prophets because they're still virgins and they're like 42 years old. That's not the case here. It's not denoting some special value to their virginity, but rather describing their age. I just wanted to, to point that out. So, anyway, Agabus arrives and he acts out this prophecy like, like some Old Testament prophets would. He takes off Paul's belt and he, he hog ties himself. He ties his hands and feet together and he says this, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Which I think was probably an interesting thing seeing Agabus because he's probably on the ground hogtied and looking up at Paul and saying, this is how you will be bound, which certainly wasn't appealing for Paul. And then after hearing this, the people in Caesarea and even Paul's friends, including Luke, become convinced that Paul should not go, and they, they want to warn him, and they try and convince him not to go. And that says, Luke writes in Acts, he says this, when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul's made this journey of many miles. He's been rushing home to get to Pentecost, and here he is. He is on the front porch of Jerusalem, and now his friends who've been with him this entire time are now saying, Paul, please do not go to Jerusalem. They're going to capture you. They're probably going to kill you. And we find out that these weren't the only warnings that Paul got. Back in chapter 20, we see that Paul received warnings in every town on his return journey. In chapter 20, it says this, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So in every town, as Paul is returning, people are coming to him and saying, the Spirit told me something. You're going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. Chains and punishment wait for you there. And it just continues and continues and continues until Paul is right there. And now even his friends have turned against him and are saying, do not go. And this is Paul's response. See, Paul, after hearing this for so long, he breaks down and he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is hurt. He is broken. But he is ready to go and preach the gospel, even if it costs him his life, to a people who have rejected their, their Savior, to a people who have continually beat Paul, a people that Paul belongs to. And he has such deep love for, he still wants to go and wants to preach the gospel to him, even if it kills him. And this was an incredibly emotional moment for Paul. And he is trying to convince his friends that he believes that this is what the Spirit has for him and he's ready for it. Now, at this point, I want to pose a question. And the question is this Was Paul wrong? 
So we've seen on this, this trip the whole way home, the Holy Spirit has been warning him and saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be imprisoned. Chains wait for you. It even says uh, in, in 21 that when he was in Tyre, the people in Tyre said that through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, I, I want to make something clear here. Paul was just a man. I certainly don't think Paul was perfect. Paul didn't believe that he was perfect. But I do think he was right to go to Jerusalem. Now, what I believe is happening here is that people, the people who are trying to convince Paul not to go, are adding to what the Spirit has given them. So, the people, they're having actual messages from the Spirit. The Spirit is telling them what awaits for Paul. But I think what God's will for Paul is, is that he would go to Jerusalem, but he would know what is waiting for him there. The Spirit is enlightening Paul as to what his, his destiny is, but the Spirit is not trying to keep him from going. Now, you notice when Agabus comes down and he ties himself up, Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit says, this is what awaits the man who owns this belt in Jerusalem. But he doesn't say, and God doesn't want you to go there. I think people hearing what would happen to Paul, this incredible missionary, this dear friend of theirs, they, they hear what the Spirit has told them, and then they add to it, don't go. Because why would you? If you knew that punishment, imprisonment, and possibly death awaited for you, why would you? And the reason Paul decides to go is because he was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit over his friends. And Paul said back in chapter 20 that he felt he was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, I want to make a quick note here when I talk about listening to the Spirit over your friends. If you encounter a situation like that, where your friends, you feel your friends are giving you advice counter to the Spirit, and your friends are good believers, they, they know the Bible, they, they pray, they desperately want the Spirit to guide them, well, I want you to be certain that it's the Spirit that you're listening to and not yourself, not this hidden part of yourself you've disguised as the Spirit. See, Paul was a man who, who was consistently in the Word, consistently praying. If there was someone I would trust to know when the Spirit is talking to him, it's Paul. And I would hope that we would get to that point ourselves where we're able to hear the Spirit and know when God is, is compelling us to do something. Because I don't want to come up here and say, oh yeah, never listen to your friends, your friends are stupid. Because that's certainly not the case a lot of the time if you're spending good time with, with, with committed Christians. And here we see Paul convinces his friends that this is what God has for him. And it says uh, that after they, after they do that, they stop trying to convince him, and instead they say, the Lord's will be done. And so from here, after this emotional moment in Caesarea, after Paul is being begged by his friends, there's weeping, heart, Paul's heart is breaking, they agree to let the Lord's will be done, and they go on towards Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and let's look at this next passage here and see what happens when Paul gets to Jerusalem. So we'll pick up here in verse 17. It says, When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. 
The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took them in, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. So here, Paul and company, they arrive in Jerusalem, and things start out really well. They have a warm welcome from James, the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, all the elders there. Now, the reason it points out James here, the reason Luke decides to to name James and not the other elders is because James at the time was considered the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was kind of the primary leader here, the guy who was holding it down back in Jerusalem. So, we're not sure who else comprised the elders. There may have been a few apostles there. We know from church tradition and history that a lot of the apostles at this time had gone out and were doing their own mission missionary journeys, that they were scattered all across the world. A couple had stayed back in Jerusalem, so they were probably here as well. But there's a warm welcome for, for Paul and his companions when they first get there, and James and the elders, they're, they're excited to hear what Paul has done and what the ministry to the Gentiles is amounting to, these churches being planted all across the eastern part of the Roman Empire. There's excitement and joy there. And then uh, they tell about uh, the, the, the elders in Jerusalem talk about the many thousands of Jews here back in the homeland, back in Judea, who have come to a saving faith in Christ. But then things start to go wrong. We hear that these Jewish converts, they're zealous for the law, which isn't a huge issue. In fact, it's probably not an issue at all for many of them. It's okay for people to follow the law of Moses, as long as they understand it doesn't provide salvation. But the problem here is that they've heard this rumor that Paul has been out and about amongst the eastern part of the Roman Empire telling uh, Jews who lived out there to stop following the uh, practices of Moses, to abandon the law, to not circumcise their children, to not keep kosher anymore. And and this was just absolutely not the case. Paul Paul himself often still followed the law, though he never encouraged uh, Jews to completely abandon it, even if they converted to Christianity. Or I suppose not converting, just accepting their, their Messiah. 
And on top of this, on top of this divide that's being created in the church by these people hearing these lies about Paul, these, these Jewish Christians back in the, the Judea hearing these lies about Paul, there's even more tension because the Jews who've not accepted Jesus as the Messiah are, are livid about this. This former Pharisee, this guy who they knew, this Paul guy who was so zealous to, to persecute Christians, now he's out there basically deconverting the Jews? This is unacceptable. And so people are, are angry, and, and, and it's, it's dangerous. They're worried about what might happen to Paul. But the elders here, they have a plan. They know what, what's going to convince people that Paul still loves the law of Moses. And so here's what they do. They say, take these four men who've taken a vow, and this vow was likely a Nazarite vow, which you might have heard of. Uh, so a Nazarite vow was a temporary commitment someone would make to devote themselves to God. And in doing so, they would have to abstain from certain things. So they'd have to abstain from cutting their hair. Now, this is probably where things start to click. You're like, wait, isn't that like Samson? Yes, Samson took a lifelong Nazarite vow. Um, and so he never cut his hair. But for many people who took the, the vow of Nazir or the Nazarite vow, it was, it was a temporary thing. And so during this time where they're under this vow, they couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't consume anything related to grapes. They couldn't consume any alcohol or anything derived from alcohol. And they could not be in the presence of dead bodies. And during this time, they were supposed to devote themselves to prayer, to study the Scriptures, and to, to clean and holy living on top of uh, these things they're abstaining from. And at the end of their time under this vow, they would get to shave their heads in the temple, and they'd offer these, these sacrifices. They'd give these offerings in the temple. And so what, what the disciples had planned, or the, so the elders here in Jerusalem had planned, is they said, take these four, four men who've made this Nazarite vow, they've got this long unkempt hair, and now they're at the end of their vow. So now that they're at the end of their vow, they'll go make this offering for, to be purified, they'll have to wait some time, then they'll shave their heads, you'll pay for them to shave their heads, and that'll show everyone that you care about the law. Not a bad plan. We don't really have anything today that I could compare the Nazarite vow to. But basically, it would be like being a super Christian, if you want to put that in words. It's, it's going really up and above for, for the Jews at the time. It's a really big deal. It's, the, it's this really serious vow. And so, it really would have shown that Paul did appreciate the law of Moses if he's here and people appreciated that what he was doing. And so, it wasn't a bad plan. So, again, uh, the Jerusalem elders point out something they decided in Acts 15. So, they, they give Paul this plan, you'll go do this, it'll work out well, and they, then they also touch on another point that they've brought up before. So, they talk about this letter they've given out concerning their decision. Now, back in Acts chapter 15, the, there was some concern about the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they, they had different practices, and the Jewish Christians, a lot of them didn't want to give up a lot of the traditions from the law. They had no interest in that, and they were still really uh, concerned about people doing those, uh, those traditions, even though Jesus had made it clear that that's not part of what the church needs to do. And so, as the Gentiles were starting to come to faith, there was some division growing, and so the, the elders in Jerusalem, they decide, they say, okay, here's what we're, we're going to do. We're just going to say Gentiles can be Christians, but they have to do this. They can't, eat any, they can't eat blood, they can't eat any food sacrificed to idols, they can't eat anything that's strangled, and they're going to keep themselves pure of sexual immorality. 
And so here, we see that they've written this up in a letter. Presumably, they're going to give it to Paul when he goes back out so he can tell all the people, this is what you have to do. And this was kind of a compromise that was supposed to keep the, the church whole, that there wouldn't be this strong divide between these Jewish Christians who are, are still thinking uh, that they need to do the law and looking down on the people who aren't, that they could then come together and not feel like they're disgusted by these Gentiles if they're keeping these things up. And it was meant to, to keep the church unified. So, after this letter is given to Paul, or at least is talked about, Paul goes to the temple and starts the purification ritual, which would take about a week until they were pure. And then once they were pure, they could go into the temple, these people could shave their heads, they could make the offerings, and then everybody would know, boom, Paul cares about the law. At least that was the plan. Now, this is the end of the passage that I'm preaching through today, but I want to say a little bit more. I'm sorry to spoil the rest of the story, but this was the beginning of the end for Paul. This plan that the elders in Jerusalem had hatched up to convince the Jews back in Jerusalem that Paul cares about the law did not work. It was ineffective, and as we study, you'll see just how ineffective it was. So Paul would, in fact, be imprisoned. He would stay imprisoned until he died in Rome executed by the emperor. Now, I said I believed Paul was right to go to Jerusalem, and that was with this knowledge in mind that Paul would be in prison there. I'm not entirely certain why the Spirit encouraged Paul to go to Jerusalem, but I have a few reasons, I think, why. One, it was, it was one more attempt to see more Jews saved. The Hebrews were, were God's people, his chosen people, who, for, through whom he planned to save the rest of the world. And sending Paul back to Jerusalem is just one more attempt in, in many attempts to see more Jews saved. And, and thankfully, we see here that thousands at this point have been saved, and as we continue through, we see maybe a couple more in, in there. And so there is some encouragement there. And the next reason is that during Paul's imprisonment, he had the opportunity to write many of his letters, allowing him to build up the church from afar, not only through distance, but through time. See, many of these letters became books of the Bible. I have a slide up here containing a few that we are certain were written while Paul was in prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And there's probably a couple more that may have been written during this time as well. If you've read these books, you know the value and wisdom that's contained with them, within them. And because of Paul's imprisonment, he wasn't able to go out and church plant. He wasn't able to evangelize in the same way he was when he was free. So instead, he set his mind toward writing letters. And we are so blessed that that happened. Lastly, I want to look at Paul's opinion on his own imprisonment that we get from his letter to the Philippians. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Paul here had been in prison for, for quite a while. 
And despite this, he found joy and purpose in it. He says that what has happened to him has actually advanced the gospel. We see an incredible thing here that throughout the imperial guard or the praetorian guard, as it was called at the time, there was this knowledge that Paul was a prisoner for Christ. And I think part of what Paul is communicating there is that some or many of them have come to a faith in Christ. So this is establishing here in Rome this, this base for Christianity to grow there. On top of that, Paul saw his imprisonment as a blessing because it encouraged others. The fact that Paul did not give up, the fact that Paul was not beaten but had joy and had hope in his imprisonment encouraged those who were outside, made them bolder to spread the gospel. And what Paul went through is something awful and something I hope none of us ever have to experience. I don't think Paul went to Jerusalem because he was looking for pain, because he was looking for punishment. I think that's insane. It's wrong to go and look for suffering, but it's right to follow the Spirit into suffering. We see when Jesus was about to die on the cross, he wasn't looking excited. He wasn't ready to go up there and be punished and take on the sin of the world. He was begging his Father, begging God that if there was any other way that they'd go through that. But there wasn't. Instead, he followed his Father's will. He said, thy will be done. And he went onto the cross. Paul, seeing what awaited him in Jerusalem, being told in every town on his way back to Jerusalem that you're going to be imprisoned, you may die because of what happens in Jerusalem, went, he said to God, thy will be done. If there's one thing I want you to take away from the sermon today, it's that you would be willing to say to God, thy will be done. As I pray, the worship team can come back up and we'll enter into a time of worship. There'll be people around the edges wearing the prayer lanyards if you'd like to pray with them, uh, or me, I'll be in the back. Uh, I encourage you to do that. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your plan for your church. We're thankful that even though we don't understand oftentimes what the best thing is, you do. And so, Father, because you are wiser, because your perspective is greater, because you know more, we ask that you would humble us, that we would listen to what it is you have to say. God, that no matter what it is we believe awaits us, whether it's joyful or whether it's painful, that we would say to you, your will be done. God, you are good and perfect. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your church. We're thankful for this time of worship. God, just help us to pursue you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.